sounds like political presidential talk to me. And I know people have talked to you about whether or not you want to run. Would you would you ever? Probably not. But I, I do get tired of seeing the country ripped Why off. would you not? I just don't think I really have the inclination to do it. I love what I'm doing. I really like it. Also, I, it doesn't pay as well. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, I just probably wouldn't do it. I probably wouldn't. But I do get tired of seeing what's happening with this country. And if it got so bad, I would never want to rule it out totally because I really am tired of seeing what's happening with this country, how we're, how we're really making other people live like kings and we're not. Mr. Trump, you've done great things in your life. And I just wonder, how do I, as an average person, begin? Like, well, first of all, never think of yourself as average. You started off with the wrong question because you're not average. You've got a lot going. I see you're smart. I see you're very beautiful. And you're right against Erin. Look how beautiful she is. But, you know, I don't see anything. You have to tell yourself that you just have to get that word average out of your vocabulary. And you have to tell yourself that you're great. And you have to believe it. If you can say it and don't believe it, it doesn't matter. So just go out there and work hard. You've said, though, that if you did run for president, you believe you'd win. Well, I don't know. I think I'd win. I tell you what, I wouldn't go in to lose. I've never gone in to lose in my <laughs> life. And, and if I did decide to do it, I think I'd be inclined. I, w I would say that I would have a hell of a chance of winning because I think people, I don't know how your audience feels, but I think people are tired of seeing the United States ripped off. I can't promise you everything, but I can tell you one thing. This country would make one hell of a lot of money from those people that for 25 years have taken advantage. It wouldn't be the way it's been, believe me. Thanks to you, we'll have a president of the United States who will make appointments to the highest court in the land that will uphold the sanctity of life, our second amendment in the Constitution of the United States. Thanks to you. With your votes, the great citizens of this country declare to the world that from now on, it's going to be America first. America first. The script is not yet written. We do not know what the page will read tomorrow. But for the first time in a long time, what we do know is that the pages will be authored by each and every one of you. You, the incredible American people, will be in charge. Your voice, your desires, your hopes, your aspirations will never again fall on deaf ears. The forgotten men and women, by the way, they're not so forgotten anymore, are they? There is nothing we cannot do. No task is too great, no dream too large, no goal beyond our reach. My message tonight is for all Americans, from all parties, all beliefs, all races, all walks of life. Whether you are African American, Hispanic American, Asian American, we are all Americans, and we are all united by one shared destiny. So I'm asking everyone to join this incredible movement. I'm asking you to dream big again, dream big and bold and daring for your families, for yourself, for your country, big and bold and daring. I'm asking you to believe in yourself, and I'm asking you to believe once again in America. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. And your courage and goodness and love will forever guide us along the way. Together, we will make America strong again. 
We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. Indeed, he promised and he delivered, promises made and promises kept. This president uh, is the last president that this nation will ever see that is for the people. And it's not over yet. That changes later. But for now, we must remember why we chose President Trump. Because it wasn't, he wasn't selected. He was hated by both the right and the left. He was hated by almost every nation on the planet because he was about to bust open the floodgates of information. And he did this in a very subtle way. So today, rather than me allow myself to feel the frustration and, and, and resonate it, I thought I could teach you the tools so you can understand it better. So the first thing I wanted us to talk about is what is on what is the meaning of the word usurper, right? What is the meaning? Because I've talked about it with uh, the quote warrantos and the demands, but it simply is applicable outside of government too. usurper, one who wrongfully or illegally seizes and holds the place of another. Um, I guess a fake it till you make it or a steal it or has done so in an erroneous fashion. Usurper. U-S-U-R-P-E-R. -E Usurper. So many people can usurp positions and those can be crafted positions as seats of authority or they create them. For example, um, I thought we could talk a little bit about um, psychology, you know, and the powers of influence. But to tell you that, I need to mention the first thing that you can do without even seeing a person, okay? You don't need to see a person. You can hear a person. And you can understand when they're deceiving you, okay? You can understand when someone is deceiving you simply by their words, I've mentioned uh, this uh, many a times, that definitions matter, words matter. And aside from being in tune with frequency to understand the underlying intention of the word used, right? You must understand how they deceive. The first and utter foremost way of someone who is attempting to deceive you, they will use referrals. They will refer to other people's authority, other people's statements. I mean, just like you, if you're looking to see what to do, you have given some, for example, you go to your doctor and you're sick and the doctor's like, all right, you're going to take this medicine three times a day. And you vested the authority to the doctor based on the, his credentials that he is there to help you answer questions about your health. 
Therefore, you have given him that authority. The authority comes in all forms and fashions, from uh, your uh, health, where you give authority, education, um, where you garner your information, what do you use as a search engine? You've given it authority. Words matter. So I thought I'd play this clip. This is from a former uh, officer. I want you to listen to this carefully, okay? For whatever reason, you didn't have the time, you just didn't want to be bothered with it, or you wanted a shortcut. You wanted the one thing that supersedes them all. You would go with authority. So this is talking about influencers and how they influence people. So people that have no idea what they're talking about or just want to jump into the game or they feel like they've been self-appointed or they're self-appointed because they know or they have been tasked and need to mask the fact that they have been tasked, then the one thing they go for in order to garner influence over the masses is authority. Because what authority by simply having authority or being perceived as an authority, people are going to listen to and trust what you have to say. Look at celebrities. Some celebrities could be an expert in one area, yet you see them doing commercials for something completely unrelated to what they're a known expert in. It doesn't matter. Once you have authority, people believe that you have this magical type of aura about you and they will listen to what you have to say. So the question then becomes, how do you engineer authority? How do you become an authority on whatever it is that you're selling, pitching, influencing, persuading, or communicating to other people? Well, I've discovered a four-stage process. After 15 years of studying human communication, psychology, NLP, influence, persuasion, and, and studying politicians, public figures, public speakers, social media icons, high-level entrepreneurs, I've identified a four-stage process that they go through to create authority. And so the four-stage process works like this. The first thing you have to do is set the frame. So you have to take certain necessary steps for people to perceive you as an authority before they even interact with you. And that's very important. The second thing that you have to do is you have to engineer power because all authority figures have power in one way or another. And the good news is that you can start with zero power and you can use something called an active transfer of power where you can leverage somebody else's credibility or somebody else's power to make you more powerful. Or you could use what we call implied transfers of power, which are just like testimonials or written or spoken word from people that have done business with you before or have listened to you before. And as a result, have had something positive happen to them. The next step is you need to become the alpha. And so what that means is it doesn't mean that you have to be loud and abrasive and bark at people like I do. What it means is that you just have to be that person that assumes the leadership role, that person that other people follow. At the end of the day, they're leaders and there are followers and authorities are leaders. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be an alpha all the time. It doesn't mean that you have to be an alpha in everything that you do, because I want you to realize something, whether you realize it or not, 
you assume a different role in different areas of your life anyway. So think about that. You don't converse the same way with your high school buddies that you do with your boss. You don't talk to people the same way at a funeral that you do at a wedding. And if you do, you have very poor communication skills. So hopefully you know the difference between the two. There's a difference. Things like context and environment and social status impact the way that we communicate and the way that we carry ourselves around other people. Well, if you are selling a product, a service, an opinion, an idea, and you want to generate authority, you need to become the alpha in that area of your life. And there are different ways that you can do that, but you need to do it. And then the last thing, the last stage is speaking the language, speaking like an authority, communicating like an authority. The way that you speak, the way that you convey your message is ultra important when it comes to being an authority. You can't stutter step. You can't use vocal fillers like, uh, ooh, ah. You can't do things like that. You have to speak with confidence and you have to know what you're talking about because the minute people sense that you don't, all your credibility goes out the window. So again, the four stage process, very simple. Set the frame, engineer power, become the alpha, and then speak the language. So this is what I like to coin as circle jerking. So this is what they do. They all create a team. They're all leaders in their own. They take hold of one narrative and then they all complement each other, all of them. And you know what the problem is, is that, um, uh, people that operate in such fashions, when they grow, uh, their click to be solid and they expand to, uh, introduce new members of the circle, they devour others. Uh, once they're useless, they devour them and spit them out and bring more. Useless, devour, spit, and bring more. And this growth of, of this uh, uh, devouring of previous assets they used to bolster themselves um, can actually influence people that actually have authority. Because no human is, uh, how do I say this? Not susceptible to influence. There we go. Uh, and this is why I referred to, uh, many times for you to watch certain shows that may give you some insight on how this happens. It's a, it's pretty much reality hacking or like, uh, some places call it brain hacking, influence hacking, influence, uh, operations, IIA, you name it. It's just a psychological operation basically. Okay. And it is deployed on all levels. Sometimes it's done for what they consider good, but it's never good. The only way to defeat this monster, this fog of war of information is to, uh, pretty much dispel it with the truth. 60 minutes rewind. Have you ever wondered if all those people you see staring intently at their smartphones nearly everywhere and at all times are addicted to them? According to a former Google product manager you're about to hear from, Silicon Valley is engineering your phone, apps, and social media to get you hooked. He's one of the few tech insiders to publicly acknowledge that the companies responsible for programming your phones are working hard to get you and your family to feel the need to check in constantly. Some programmers call it brain hacking, 
and the tech world would probably prefer you didn't hear about it. But Tristan Harris openly questions the long-term consequences of it all, and we think it's worth putting down your phone to listen. This thing is a slot machine. How is that a slot machine? Well, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to um, hijack people's minds, create a habit, to form a habit. What you do is you make it so when someone pulls a lever, sometimes they get a reward, an exciting reward. And it turns out that this design technique can be embedded inside of all these products. The rewards Harris is talking about are a big part of what makes smartphones so appealing. The chance of getting likes on Facebook and Instagram, cute emojis and text messages, and new followers on Twitter. There's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you using for the product for as long as possible. So this is how they recruited influencers into their domain. Uh, they wanted to see who could play the game right. And uh, this is what I called uh, Operation uh, Gridlock, where people were getting high off of the fact that they were getting followers, right? That's all they were doing. And the more followers they got, more people would follow them. And then they would uh, completely embrace that you know those trump train things oh follow all these patriots trump train trump train that was exactly what they used on people uh this is why we have sections that tell you you know the hashtags this is what you need to look at in your area this is trending here take a look uh this is what is most popular in things that you like take a look this is uh, they completed this operation perfectly. Listen to this. And obviously you see that it's Anderson Cooper doing this, right? And you're just like, this is, this is nuts. Why would they out the way that they're hijacking the minds? I'll tell you why. Because they were busy while you were asleep creating laws in order to use them against you. So while you were distracted with BLM, both Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, which were created by the same organization, okay? By the same organization, you were distracted. They were making laws. They were changing your voting laws. They were changing the laws in general. They were trying to push digital currency. They were hitting you on so many fronts. You had no idea what to look for. And instead, they had you focusing on an operation that was taken completely out of control by a bunch of people that were recruited by the other side by feeding the monster, giving them followers. I mean, where are they now? See, this is the key to everything because today you're going to see the law they made and how they're going to use that against you. I mean, I, I, I had reference that they were doing this uh, when I was talking about Adam Schiff. I'm comfortable with not spelling things out. There's no point to that puts an even bigger target on your back and silence you silences you a lot faster. I also told you that all these losers, you know, gathering money to do a, uh, a, um, a lawsuit against Twitter and Facebook and YouTube are going to fail. I because it wasn't the one that was going to happen. It was when the president was going to do it. And he's using the same template, but as a class action that Laura Loomer did. That's why I said she was very important, that she is going to change the face of history. So while everyone was distracted, right? Giving you hopium, giving you red digital string, right? 
that operation was completely obliterated. The liberation of the people because it was hijacked by self-serving, greedy, disgusting people who honestly do believe in their minds that they were helping America because they're the authority to speak because they're using other people's coattail. Well, so-and-so came on my show and so-and-so came on my show and oh, I know this person and I know that person. Oh, don't look at this. And it's like, that's not how you gain authority. If you need somebody else's clout to be important, then you're not that important. That's, that's the end of it. And when you just hatch out of nowhere and you just, oh, I'm this, it's all about titles and tiaras, isn't it? See, this is how they brainwash the people. So while you're going in a million directions and even really good people fell into these insane rabbit holes, insane they were creating laws and they've actually passed one that no one's talking about. And it's extremely important that we do, at least now. I mentioned it a few times, just saying, you know, oh, they're going after this. Sounds like they're a little bit upset. Sounds like they're mitigating. But it wasn't a time to spell it out because we needed that to be there. Because or else, if it didn't happen, you wouldn't believe it was going to happen. That's the problem. The problem with the conditioning that man has undergone over centuries is that they believe that they have to see it to believe it. There is no faith. Everyone is bad unless they can do what? Pull their pants and show you what color their butthole is? I'm sorry, graphic, but that's how personal they want to be. You know what, what pisses me off the most? All these people now going on this McAfee spree hated McAfee. They loathed him because he was so in their face. They called him disgusting. Remember the video he did? I think I talked about it and I don't remember when. And you know, the transcription is a great tool, but it's not perfect. But it was a video that he did where he was pretending that he was having dinner and having children and people. And I, I don't know if you guys remember that video. I remember all these groups that believe they are authority, that they're, that they're the hammers of truth and that they believe in God disowned him. And now look at them elevating him. You see, see for him, because he's McAfee and has a title, for him, because he's McAfee and openly said, I am coming for each and every one of you at the deep state because you screwed me. Because he's McAfee, him being a bad guy turning into a good guy, because even anybody has a floor of morals, right, is okay. But Bergie, me, or anybody else, it's not okay. Why? Because no one in authority has come out to tell you, see, that is also part of your problem. This is the biggest problem ever. You can find information and videos where they talk shit about him, and now they're elevating him to a God status. That's it. You see, that's where we go. You have to be paying attention to the consistency of their message. You have to see how they go with the waves. I can point out, because I know a lot of people who I cry this, and it can ping back and smack you in the face. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm okay with him doing all these atrocities before because he's saving us now. I can't trust you, though, because you work for Brennan. Let me tell you something. Brennan was 
the highest, lowest piece of fruit I work for. In fact, I wouldn't say that I worked for him. We kind of worked together, but he was the authority for the United States. Ergo, why I call him my boss. That's fact. That is fact. So when people say you worked for him, with him, right? Whatever. And we can't trust, but you can trust the guy who's done all those things, right? But now he's in redemption mode and he's okay. When there's, it's all out there, he's okay. But every other whistleblower that isn't like him because they don't own an antivirus isn't. You see the hypocrisy? Do you see how that works? Do you see how that works? I mean, I always admired John for his tenacity and his, you know, and hey, John, whichever one's listening, genius. I apologize for the chaotic interference, but it was definitely necessary. This has to stop at some point. The lies upon lies, the trying to sequester authority in a narrative, just let the truth go and it'll guide itself. Why do you have to command authority? Why do you have to command the truth? You don't. You definitely don't. See, the truth is so liberating and is so strong that it can stand on its own two feet. On its own two feet. So when I say I believe in redemption, there are a lot of people out there that have done a lot of bad things. And then it's that epiphany moment where they come back and say, and, and, and God opens his arms and says, come, I will create a feast for you because you know. So it's okay for some, but not for others. Some people can redeem themselves and others can't. The sequestering of information, the gatekeeping of information, or trying to create these barriers for information to claim an authority, I believe is the most appalling thing during this time of war. There will be so many casualties because you've interfered because unknowingly, even though you were looking at this, 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 deifying X, Y, Z, this, 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 right? What you missed was that the other side was right there, tagging along, bolstering you, feeding your ego. So that way you feel that that, you know, that reward you're getting is confirmation that you're doing the right thing. <laughs> Do you think bad people don't get confirmation that they're doing something right? Yeah, it's called a Rolex, a house, a hot Chinese wife, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. Asian women are hot, so that's why I keep saying that. <laughs> Such a stereotype. You're so racist. Totally. Um, but the sequestration of this information and the commanding of authority from smoothie maker to I was on Mars to this to I'm just nobody. I'm just great at decoding. Decoding what? Something that wasn't intended to be decoded uh, by you, of course. Uh, these are the things that have caused such a confusion among the U.S. and global population that they're tired of it. They're tired of the attacks. They're tired of the, wait a minute, do we trust this person? Do we trust that one? This is why I've been saying, just trust your gut, man. Because at the bottom, at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit here and whoop out pictures and my evidence, or if I have any tangible evidence, I may not, may or may not have it in my possession. Nobody, now I don't have to prove shit. 
you don't like what you hear, you walk away. That's what everyone should be doing. But these are all, you know, they just sprout out of freaking nowhere. And they talk from a point of authority. I've got stuff going back years. They've got it from, what, 2018? And boasted up? Well, I'm, I do the truth. and Oh, I pray all the time. Yet you're evil. Because what you're doing is evil. You are leading these people astray. With the help that you are offering. <laughs> which is help for not the good guys. Instead of embracing, you suffocate. Instead of releasing truth, you sequester and you confer. Did so-and-so confirm this? Then we can do this. So-and-so confirm. I mean, look how many of them have to decide. Do we all throw Linwood under the bus? Because so-and-so said so, so we must. And, oh, look, this is a bonafide person. Like someone was showing me, someone texted me <laughs> something uh, showing me Seth. And it's like, dude, I know Seth and I know his sister really well, which I freaking love, by the way. Still have the perfume she gave me, right? And talking about how this is more this, that. It's like, no, stop, stop. You're just, you're, you need to stop. You can't have the whole cake. You ate, you got full. Now walk away. Step away nicely so that the people can get on with with the truth. How can you fight a war that you don't know what it's about? It's like someone telling you, hey, all the Easter bunnies are your enemy, right? But it's not an Easter bunny. It's a, it's a squirrel, right? And you're aiming for Easter bunnies while the squirrels are populating like nobody's business and driving around everywhere, confusion, and you're targeting Easter bunnies because that's what they told you to look out for a rabbit with some, you know, eggs in its basket. So you're following that point because all of them have agreed that's the point. Everyone is human and they make mistakes. I get it. I totally get it. But when you, when you consistently do this, it is the biggest atrocity. Like if I was a judge and I had in front of me Nancy Pelosi and one of you, I would give you the hardest penalty I can because you should know better. Pelosi, she already told me who she is. She already told me where she sits. She's already shown me over the years who she is. But you came in, sir or ma'am, popped in. And completely caused casualties, casualties of inner peace, casualties, legit to the definition, what a casualty mean, means. That's the biggest problem ever. Those are going to be the ones that are going to be hanging their heads in shame. Uh, I remember how much shit I got on Twitter for promoting uh, McAfee from these alleged accounts. Like it was CJ Truth once that said, how could you promote such a guy? And I was like, do you know him? No, but he says, but do you know him? He was like, do you ask you the question first? Do you know him? Do you understand him? Do you know what he's telling you? See, these are the things that we need to be paying attention to. The consistency, the consistency. And I'm not talking about Seth Rich. Okay. I don't know why. People interject and say things that aren't it. Okay. So take a listen to what Google's telling you. Yeah, what, what, are, what kind of techniques are used? So Snapchat's the most popular uh, messaging service for teenagers. And they invented this feature called Streaks, which shows the number of days in a row that you've sent a message back and forth with someone. 
So now you can say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the problem is that kids feel like, well, now I don't want to lose my streak. But it turns out that kids actually, when they go on vacation, are so stressed about their streak that they actually give their password to like five other kids to keep their streaks going on their behalf. And so you could ask, when, when these features are being designed, are they designed to most help people live their life? Or are they being designed because they're best at hooking people into using the product? Is, is Silicon Valley programming apps or are they programming people? Inadvertently, whether they want to or not, they're shaping the thoughts and feelings and actions of, of people. They are programming people. They, there's always this narrative that technology is neutral and it's up to us to choose how we use it. This is just not true. Technology is not neutral. It's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. It's rare for a tech insider to be so blunt. But Tristan Harris believes someone needs to be. A few years ago, he was living the Silicon Valley dream. He dropped out of a master's program at Stanford University to start a software company. Four years later, Google bought him out and hired him as a product manager. It was while working there, he started to feel overwhelmed. Honestly, I was just bombarded in email and calendar invitations and just the overload of what it's like to work a place like Google. I was asking, when is all of this adding up to like an actual benefit to my life? And I ended up making this presentation. It was kind of a manifesto. And it basically said, you know, look, never before in history have a handful of people at a handful of technology companies shaped how a billion people think and feel every day with the choices they make about these screens. His 144-page presentation argued that the constant distractions of apps and emails are weakening our relationships to each other and destroying our kids' ability to focus. It was widely read inside Google and caught the eye of one of the founders, Larry Page. But Harris told us it didn't lead to any changes, and after three years, he quit. And it's not because anyone is evil or has bad intentions. It's because the game is getting attention at all costs. And the problem is it becomes this race to the bottom of the brainstem, where if I go lower on the brainstem to get you, you know, using my product, I win, but it doesn't end up in the world we want to live in. We don't end up feeling good about how we're using all this stuff. You, you call this a race to the bottom of the brainstem. It's a race to the most primitive emotions we have, fear, anxiety, loneliness, yeah. all these things. Absolutely. And that, that's, again, because in the race for attention, I have to do whatever works. It absolutely wants one thing, which is your attention. Now he travels the country trying to convince programmers and anyone else who will listen that the business model of tech companies needs to change. He wants products designed to make the best use of our time, not just grab our attention. Do you think parents understand the, the complexities of what their kids are dealing with when they're dealing with their, their phone, dealing with apps and social media? No, and I think this is really important um, because there's a narrative that, oh, I guess they're just doing this like we used to gossip on the phone. But what this misses is that your telephone in the 1970s didn't have a thousand engineers on the other side of the telephone who are redesigning it to work with other telephones and then updating the way your telephone worked every day to be more and more persuasive. So persuasive. This is why I hate advertising. Any product that hits the market that allows for people to advertise, even though some of us love advertisements, right? Um, I'm totally against because it's all about data mining. It's all about checking. It's all about making money, 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 money. And if your idea is to make money, 
then I, you know, am totally against it. That's the way it is. Okay. That's the way it is. Now I'm going to tell you, um, I'm going to show you actually why the Roman empire had to fail. Uh, there was a video that was done. And the reason I'm doing this is to show you just how the shadow president for four years, well, and five now, right? He's been shadow president for five years, shadow president, not the president, shadow president. You're going to understand where we are at by using a little bit of history. So here we go in understanding the Roman empire had to fall. And here is why great little video the roman empire became in its peak a shining lighthouse in the distance that guided three continents in its time to an era of prosperity and culture that was not however the case of the late roman empire in the fifth century its once proud citizens were humiliated into an instrument of production its once strong legions became poorly equipped hordes of disillusioned men that when a wall first chance they got, and its senators, once important carriers of the proud ancestry of the Republic, became not only rich, but above imperial control rich that cared only about money in their own pockets. Romans became just part of some monstrously huge, rattling and smelly machine that had no purpose for them. The machine that only wore out itself and its parts. In the video, I would like to show you the reasons why the Roman Empire collapsed in 476, why nobody could save it, and also why there was no point. If there was something constant in the Roman imperial system, it was a lack of clear inheritance procedures upon the emperor's death. It has never been clarified who should a new emperor be, and as time went on, the range of people who could suggest an imperial bid became wider. In the beginnings of the Roman Empire, only a member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty could have a chance of becoming an emperor. But when a non-dynasty member, Vespasian, seized the power after a civil war in 69, the range of potential emperors extended from members of one dynasty to all senators within Italy. Trajan set a new precedent with his Hispanic roots in 98. Emperor can now emerge within senatorial ranks from any province. Septimius Severus showed in 196 that beating everyone who is in your way is enough to dwell in the imperial palace. Macrinus revealed in 217, the emperor doesn't even need to be a senator, as long as you kill your predecessor, and electing a Thracian non-Latin-speaking Maximinus Thrax into an imperial office by his legions meant literally everyone can become from 235 on an emperor. Maybe you think this could be a chance for you to become an emperor and change things. You would be a magnanimous ruler that would put all effort into rebuilding damaged roads, reviving the economy, or appointing capable people to help the empire fend off endless barbaric attacks. But the civil wars, which are led by ambitious generals that want to sit on the imperial throne as well, will take most of your resources. Rebuilding roads can mean an usurper will march faster against you. 
Reviving the economy can mean you won't have enough money to discourage soldiers from mutiny. And instead of appointing capable people to run provinces and fend of barbarians and giving them appropriate amount of money and forces, you will focus on appointing the most harmless servants while providing them with substandard funds. Capable people are a real-time threat because if they lead a successful campaign against barbarians or run province too well, they might end up declaring themselves emperors and lead their forces against you, using the shaky loyalty of the army to their advantage. By the way, even if they are super duper loyal to you, it makes no difference. Armies may declare them emperors against their will and threaten to kill them if they refuse. Maybe you think you are a brilliant tactician and you can take on all usurpers in a battle. But you should remember two lessons from civil war battles. Lesson number one. Legionnaires have adopted an unpleasant habit of killing their emperors and joining the usurper side just to avoid a battle. Lesson number two. Civil war battle always equals a disastrous battle, no matter who wins. Have you heard of the Battle of Mersa? In the battle, Constantius II defeated usurper Magnentius, but that day around 60,000 Romans died on both sides. More than in the most Roman disastrous battle of Teutoburg Forest and Adrianople combined. So your victory will inevitably exhaust further resources of the empire. But even when you don't force soldiers to fight against their own countrymen and you don't cut off their pay, you can still be killed for any reason by your soldiers. Emperor Aurelian was killed for being stern. Severus Alexander was being cowardly. Elagabalus was too degenerate. Constance was too gay. Gratian neglected his responsibilities. Maximinus laid siege to a city for too long, while Probus forced soldiers to do manual work. And Carinus snatched his centurion's wife. A grave mistake that cost him his life in the middle of a winning battle. So eventually, you will be spending half of your time as an emperor on damage control, taking care of soldiers. Wait a minute, did you guys see that? That um, Emperor Constant was too gay. <laughs> I just, I just want to show you how what you are seeing now is exactly our, uh, our politics over the past 245 years. I mean, I want you to pay attention. The too stern, we've had that. The too cowardly, totally had that. Too degenerate, too lazy, too how dare you question me. The too gay, oh, we just, <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay, I'm just saying. This is the new Rome, but it's a global one. So look at why it fell. You will be spending half of your time as an emperor on damage control, taking care of soldiers and usurpers, will take good portion of your emperorship and any capable people around you will be a constant threat to you and your administration. Also, you won't be a magnanimous ruler either. Acting like a normal human being while walking among your fellow citizens like Princeps Augustus is dangerous. Not because of a possible assassination, but because you might lose your divine aura which protects you from being deposed. 
So what he is stating here is the mistakes that they made, right? The mistakes they made. So if a leader is too busy taking out usurpers or its enemies, it loses his status. If a leader is too pedestrian, then other people are like, oh, he's just, you know, an average Joe. So we can take him out. Actually, I think that's one of the best strategies to use against those that come out. But let's keep going. Your citizens are your subjects and you are their master, Lord, God. You dwell in seclusion in your palace, either in Rome, Mediolanum, Ravenna, or Constantinople, meeting only a close circle of the most trusted advisors and hiding from the outside world that could destroy you by any sign of your weakness or fragility. Doesn't that sound like what's going on with Joe Biden right now, the whole hiding out and putting other people forward? Mm -hmm. Your wife, sister. <laughs> Chapter two, a weak army. Do you see how many battlefronts we have? Because all these chapters seem to be applicable right now. A Roman army became a shell of its former self in the late antiquity. In all aspects, the Roman legions became obsolete, incapable of protecting the empire, and they lacked the manpower to supply the increasing demand of new soldiers. Even though a rare document called Notitia Dignitatum from 420 tells us that Rome had about 600,000 soldiers, this number is grossly exaggerated. It consisted of non-combat personnel, Chiri Border Limitani, and on paper only legions that existed only in author's creative imagination land. The real number was about half of it only 300,000 soldiers to defend around 5,000 kilometers of borders. The Roman Empire suffered heavily from manpower shortages and was unable to solve the issue. Since first century, Italians were largely exempted from serving in the army. They were already considered too soft and weak for military service. Emperor Valentinian III, 400 years later, even proclaimed that no Italian citizen is obligated to serve in the army, so the duty to defend the empire fell on provinces. The best soldiers were recruited in Pannonia and Moesia, but since the huge chunk of those provinces were under control of the Eastern Roman Empire, Western Romans had to recruit elsewhere. But as Italy was exempted, Britannia and parts of Hispania were lost after a series of disasters in 410, more on that later, and African levies could only be used to guard a vital grain supply from Africa, the huge burden of recruitment fell on Roman Gaul. That, unfortunately for Rome, was prone to separatism. But on the other hand, Romans were used to being outnumbered by their enemies compensating the lack of numbers with their excellent training and good equipment. But Roman equipment heavily deteriorated from the 3rd century on, while barbaric armies largely adopted the Roman fighting style and equipment as well. Therefore, in the late antiquity, you wouldn't find that many differences between Germanic and Roman soldiers mainly because Germans became a backbone of the Roman army, which started to rely 
rather on Gothic, Frankish or even Hunic mercenaries than its own people. Why did that happen? Because Roman citizens try their best to avoid serving 25 fucking years in an army that now mainly consisted Germanic people they despised and in an army that, according to them, fought for a lost cause. The Roman army stopped providing benefits to an individual as it used to. The salary? Nope. That was below average. The chance of getting rich by looting? Nope. That was due to a defensive policy of the empire close to zero. The prestige of becoming a Roman citizen after finishing 25 years of service? Nope. That didn't exist either. Because since 212, every free inhabitant of the empire is granted a full Roman citizenship. Therefore, descendants of great Roman heroes like Camillus or Scevola were so reluctant to join the Roman ranks, they even mutilated themselves. They cut off their thumbs, toes, even limbs and genitalia just to avoid the conscription. Also in their recruitment efforts, Roman administration had to rely very much on rich senators slash powerful landowners, who were of course personally exempted from service in the Roman army. These prominent people had two options. Either pay 25 golden solidity for one recruit, or send some of your laborers, which by usually for them the most expendable, and therefore for the Roman army, the least reliable. Those pay attention, now apply this to today's politics. This type of recruits usually spend their services fooling around, drinking and bullying civilians rather than defending the state. So in the end, the Roman administration just took the gold and rather hired for it barbaric mercenaries than their own countrymen. How do you feel about it? Would you defend the empire? What? Child slavery, government restrictions, impoverished populace, high taxes, wealth inequality. Jeez, kind of sounds like they took the Roman Empire's playbooks and why they failed putting them in sections and hit them all at once during a very small period of time. I hope you're paying attention. Let's imagine you live in a late Roman Empire between 364 and 476. You remember all that good shit from my previous video? Sports, public baths, flamingos, gone. Well, at least for you. Wealth inequality has risen to an extreme height that only the most privileged who can find work in a city can indulge themselves in doing sports or visiting baths. Luxurious gourmet food is gone for the most population as well, since commerce is in shadows. Amphitheaters are being used as quarries, because civilians rob them of stones, proven by an edict from Emperor Valentinian III prohibiting stealing stones from Roman public buildings. Chariot games have become outdated, and gladiator games are banned since 399 by Emperor Honorius. Since the middle class has evaporated during the last 200 years, there is a 90% chance you belong to the most populated class of Roman society, poor people. 
you'll probably work as a farmer on your own field that you pay taxes from. And daily, you earn about two bronze coins, called phallis, which is about two loaves of bread worth. Bronze coins are your biggest friends. If you get lucky, from time to time, you will get your hands on a silver one. Siliqua, forget about Solidus. Golden coins are for rich people only, and you will have a better chance milking a duck than seeing a single golden coin in your lifetime. But sooner or later, you, as well others, will submit to barter, since bronze coins and silver coins have become debased, and therefore worthless. Your biggest fear aren't barbarians, but Roman tax collectors. Between 375 and 400 taxes went up about 300%, which means you will be squeezed out of every penny you have. That's not the end of it. You are also obligated to supply the state with wood, wheat and coal. You also must repair public buildings and roads for free. The only way how to avoid being bullied by Roman officials like this is by bribing them, and bribes are the only weapon you have against them. You can complain to ombudsman, Emperor Theodosius appointed to help poor people against his own officials, but they are powerless and therefore totally useless. There is one way people in this environment can make dough, although it is maybe slightly morally disputable. They sell their children to slavery, unfortunately. It is a common practice. There are series of emperor's decrees from 300 on forbidding citizens from selling their own children to slave owners. But if you wait till mid-5th century, these decrees are widely ignored and sell your child practice is in full motion. <sighs> you think you reach your limit, you cannot take it any longer. The poverty, the corruption, the child slavery endless amount of edicts and decrees that forbid you from doing anything. You decide to pack your things and get out of here. You sell your land and you move somewhere. Just away from all this. Nope. But wait, you can't. Emperor Theodosius prohibits in his decree from 390 any migrations within the realm. You and your children are obligated to stay where you currently live. Forever. And if you disobey, you will be whipped. And this is just the beginning. If you think that switching jobs would make your life less miserable, you always wanted to become a smith, for example, nope. The same decree forbids everyone from changing their occupation. If you were born into a farmer family, you must remain farmer your whole life. The only way for you to change your occupation is that a government recruiter comes by and gives you a tempting offer to serve 25 years in an army. If you refuse, you will be whipped. If you try to avoid a conscription, you will be burned alive. The last possibility to get away from all this is for you to enter the services of some rich senator slash landowner and become a tenant farmer. The good news is he will protect you from Roman officials, recruiters, and tax collectors, since he has enough money to bribe them all. The bad news is you are giving up your freedom and you are becoming a subject slash softcore slave of the landowner. 
So at the exact moment you become useless to him, he will no longer protect you and throw you out in the open. So this is your life now. You understand that under these circumstances the empire's survival is unbearable. Poor people cannot be enthusiastic about defending the Roman Empire that has become a tyrannical regime in which poor people suffer and rich people drive problems away. Whatever could go wrong for the Western Roman Empire went wrong between 406 and 413. If you want to take a closer look and find out what really happened in that period of time, go check my map video and don't forget to slow it down. Summary of those years for Emperor Honorius. Capital is sacked. Eight different tribes attack the empire. Only one of them is successfully repelled, which means that seven remaining tribes now dwell within the Roman borders. Britannia and Hispania are lost. Africa is about to be lost and you have seven usurpers that have risen up against you. Wait, what? The Germans? Oh my gosh. This is like playbook-ish? If one nation could be crowned as the biggest defiers of the Roman power, it would be the Germans. Countless hordes of Wendels, Swabi, Franks, Saxons, Alemanni, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and many others were sacking empire territories along Rhine and Danube rivers, all the way from Britannia to Anatolia and Africa for over 500 years. Germanic barbarians launched around 109 major attacks on Roman soil from AD 1 to 476. The cause of Rome's downfall, however, weren't Germanic hostilities, but rather Germanic friendship. Rome could deal with the incursions, but when Germans resettled on their territories, Romans were totally clueless what to do with them, because in the late Roman Empire, the biggest enemies were also the biggest allies of Rome. As mentioned before, the Roman government couldn't rely on its own citizens to provide the necessary defense of the borders and therefore decided to hire Germanic tribes against other Germanic tribes. Hiring Germanic tribes had been a case for a long time. Personal bodyguards of the first Emperor Augustus consisted of only Germanic mercenaries. They were hired due to their strength and political indifference. Gradually, fierce Germanic warriors played more and more important military roles. After some border provinces of the empire were depopulated over time, manpower lacking emperors decided to populate those territories with some Germanic tribes. It was a good idea on paper. Germans provided wealth for the empire in times of peace by tillaging lands they were living on and defended the borders during wars. Sometimes it worked great, like when in 358 Caesar Julian resettled Franks in northern Gaul as allied Federati, but sometimes it did not go that great. When 20 years later 
Roman Emperor Valens did the same with the Visigoths in the Danube area. After Visigoths had been resettled in 376, Romans treated them like shit. That cannot come as a surprise, however, since Romans had always treated everyone like shit, friends or allies. But when you do it from position of weakness, it is not a good call. And therefore, it went downhill fast. After Visigoths rose up, defeated Romans and killed Emperor Valens in the Battle of Adrianople in 378. Valens' successor, Emperor Theodosius, had no other choice than to give Visigoths the land and rights they had requested, and, due to manpower shortages, he even allowed them to serve in the Roman army as whole tribes, under their own chieftains. What lessons Romans took after the disastrous Adrianople experience? None. They kept switching between total hostility and total subordination toward Germanic tribes as they repeated their mistakes 30 years later. In disturbances that happened after 406, the wives and children of barbarian allied Foederati throughout Italy were slain by the local Romans. This caused Visigoths to act as protectors of their own people and rose up against Rome one more time. And the result was much more devastating. Visigoths sacked Roman capital. It wasn't until General Aetius came to power that Romans found out how to deal with Germanic tribes within their realm. Thanks to Aetius' genius, Romans were able to set barbarians against one another. Visigoths against Suebi, Suebi against Vandals, Huns against Burgundians, Franks against other Franks. Aetius was a pragmatic man and knew that the survival of Rome depends on a relationship with barbarians and he tried to make the most of it. His struggle against Attila's eunuch hordes, for example, that were to be a threat of historical proportions, ended exactly at a moment when Aetius repelled eunuch forces in the Battle of Catalonian Plains. Even though Aetius' coalition of Romans and Germans was victorious, he refused to strike a final blow to the Huns, knowing that the Asian menace is the only power that keeps Germanic tribes in line. But when Hunic Empire dissolved after Attila's death in 453, and Aetius is foolishly killed by Emperor Valentinian III one year later, the fate of the empire is sealed. Germanic fear of Hans and Aetius' pragmatism were the only factors keeping the Roman Empire alive at the time. After 455, tribes of Visigoths, Franks, Vandals and Burgundians who had lived on the Roman territory as Foederati took the empire apart. Generally, it is believed that Germanic barbarians destroyed the Roman Empire. And it is a true statement, but only partially. Because it is often neglected how the reluctance of Romans to defend their empire caused its downfall. And empires with such inhabitants are beyond saving. And people who don't lift a finger to defend their homeland are meant to be subjugated. That's right. Freedom isn't free. You got to fight for it. <laughs> and if you don't lift a finger to fight for your freedom, then you don't deserve it. That's the way it goes. So now I'm going to go to something that uh, I'm going to read this. Okay. 
and I'm going to read this and I want you to listen to it for what it is. I know uh, it's been in the news lately again because it's been read before and I think it's time I read it. Here we go. I hope you guys are ready for this one so you understand it. The snake on her way to work one morning down the path alongside the lake, a tender hearted woman's poor half frozen snake. His pretty color skin had been all frosted with dew. Oh, well, she cried. I'll take you in. I'll take care of you. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sakes. Take me in, oh tender woman, sighed the snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a curvature of silk and then laid him by the fireside with some honey and some milk. Now she hurried home from work that night. As soon as she arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, sighed the snake. Now she clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in by now, you might have died. Now she stroked his pretty skin and then she kissed and held him tight. But instead of saying thanks, that snake gave her a vicious bite. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, sighed the snake. I saved you, cried the woman. And you've bit me even why? You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, you silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sakes. Take me in, oh tender woman, sighed the snake. Now this poem is a poem that the president has read. Um, and put together. Well, but if you notice what this indicates is a heart that sees good in something that is, well, it's a reptile half frozen out there. And you take pity on those and say, well, I will embrace you and offer you the opportunity to redeem yourself and be as beautiful as you can be because I see the potential in you. Because I know that if you're wrapped in cozy curvature silk, in a warm hug, with love, with food, that you will you know, flourish into something amazing. But sometimes their amazing is destruction. And this is what we are seeing right now. Many, many people will sit and claim that they are all for love, affection, unity, silence of uh, all these influence operations, the truth, but in essence, they're not because they need that to exist. They need you.
to exist. And see, everything that's going on here is almost like a disease plagued on the civilization. Well, the only cure for all of this is you, the people. I'm going to get some coffee. See you in a bit. I can feel it coming in the air tonight Oh Lord And I've been waiting for this moment For all my life Oh Lord Can you feel it? As a gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Jordan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you just gave a long answer, Madam Secretary, to Ms. Sanchez about what you heard that night, what you're doing, but nowhere in there did you mention a video. You didn't mention a video because there was never a video-inspired protest in Benghazi. There was in Cairo, but not in Benghazi. Victoria Newland, your spokesperson at the State Department, hours after the attack said this, Benghazi has been attacked by militants in Cairo. Police have removed demonstrators. Benghazi, you got weapons and explosions. Cairo, you got spray paint and rocks. One hour before the attack in Benghazi, Chris Stevens walks a diplomat to the front gate. The ambassador didn't report a demonstration. He didn't report it because it never happened. An eyewitness in the command center that night on the ground said no protest, no demonstration. Two intelligence reports that day. No protest, no demonstration. The attack starts at 3.42 Eastern time, ends at approximately 11.40 p.m. that night. At 4.06, an ops alert goes out across the State Department, says this, mission under attack, armed men, shots fired, explosions heard. No mention of a video, no mention of a protest, no mention of a demonstration. But the best evidence is Greg Hicks, the number two guy in Libya, the guy who worked side by side with Ambassador Stevens. He was asked if there had been a protest, would the ambassador have reported it? Mr. Hicks' response, absolutely. What if she was told there was a protest because they had already kicked off all this Arab Spring and someone intentionally gave her wrongful information, desecrated her alibi of what really happened to provide a naked expose? That's speculating, of course. For there to have been a demonstration on Chris Stevens' front door and him not to have reported it is unbelievable, Mr. Hicks said. He said, secondly, if it had been reported, he would have been out the back door within minutes and there was a back gate. Everything points to a terrorist attack. We just heard from Mr. Pompeo about the long history of terrorist incidents, terrorist violence in the country. And yet five days later, Susan Rice goes on five TV shows and she says this. Benghazi was a spontaneous reaction as a consequence of a video, a statement we all know is false. But don't take my word for it. Here's what others have said. 
Rice was off the reservation, off the reservation on five networks. White House worried about the politics. Republicans didn't make those statements. They were made by the people who work for you in the Near Eastern Affairs Bureau, the actual experts on Libya in the State Department. So if there's no evidence for a video inspired protest, then where'd the false narrative start? Started with you, Madam Secretary. At 10.08 on the night of the attack. Well, it could be that she wanted a protest to be there and her plan was to have a protest be there to blame the protest there for everything that happened. But what if the Americans that were supposed to set up the protest there were like, damn, this doesn't pass the smell test. Maybe we shouldn't have a protest. And then they ask, is there a protest like the other ones you did everywhere else? Yeah, sure. There is whatever. Sure. Whatever. Maybe, maybe, maybe the crews didn't get it done in time and she failed because she thought that the crews had done it in time. This is just a maybe. Back, you released a statement. Some have sought to justify the vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material posted on the internet. At 10.08, with no evidence, at 10.08 before the attack is over, at 10.08, when Tyron Woods and Glenn Doherty are still on the roof of the annex fighting for their lives, the official statement of the State Department blames a video. Why? During the day on September 11th, as you did mention, Congressman, there was a very large uh, protest against our embassy in Cairo. Protesters breached the walls. They tore down the uh, American flag. Uh, and it was of grave concern to us because the inflammatory video had been shown on Egyptian television, which has a broader uh, reach than just inside Egypt. And if you look at what I said, I referred to the video that night in a very specific way. I said, some have sought to justify the attack because of the video. I used those words deliberately, not to ascribe a motive to every attacker, but as a warning to those across the region uh, that uh, there was no justification for further attacks. And in fact, uh, during the course of that week, uh, we had many attacks that were all about the video. We had people breaching the walls of our embassies in Tunis and Khartoum. We had people, I'm thankfully sorry. not Americans, dying Secretary at um, protests, but that's what was going on, Congressman. Secretary Clinton, I appreciate most of those attacks were after the attack on the uh, facility in, in Benghazi. You mentioned Cairo. It was interesting what else Ms. Uh, Ms. Newland said that day. She said, uh, if pressed, by the press, if there's a connection between Cairo and Benghazi, she said this, there's no connection between the two. So here's what troubles me. Your experts knew the truth. Your spokesperson knew the truth. Greg Hicks knew the truth. But what troubles me more is I think you knew the truth. I wanna show you a few things here. You're looking at an email you sent to your family. Here's what you said. At 11 o'clock that night, approximately one hour after you told the American people it was a video, you say to your family, two officers were killed today in Benghazi by an Al-Qaeda-like group. You tell, you tell the American people one thing, you tell your family an entirely different story. Also, on the night of the attack, you had a call with the president of Libya. 
Here's what you said to him. Ansar al-Sharia is claiming responsibility. It's interesting. Mr. Katala, one of the guys arrested and charged, actually belonged to that group. And finally, and most significantly, the next day, within 24 hours, he had a conversation with the Egyptian prime minister. He told him this. We know the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. It was a planned attack, not a protest. Let me read that one more time. We know, not we think, not it might be, we know the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. It was a planned attack, not a protest. State Department experts knew the truth. You knew the truth, but that's not what the American people got. And again, the American people want to know why. Why didn't you tell the American people exactly what you told the Egyptian prime minister? Well, I think if you look at the statement that I made, I clearly said that it was an attack. And I also said that there were some who tried to justify Secretary it Clinton, on, the basis, on the basis of the video, Congressman. And I but, think but, it's- but, 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 Real quick, calling it an attack is like saying the sky's blue. Of course it was an attack. Well, you know, I mean, we want to know the truth. This, the statement you sent out was a statement on Benghazi and you say vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material on the internet. If that's not pointing as the motive of being a video, I don't know what is. And that's certainly what, and that's certainly how the American people saw it. Well, well, Congressman, there was a lot of conflicting information that we were trying to make sense of. The situation was very fluid. It was fast moving. There was also a claim of responsibility by Ansar al-Sharia. And when I talked to the Egyptian prime minister, I said that this was uh, a claim of responsibility by Ansar al-Sharia, by uh, a group that was affiliated or at least wanted to be affiliated with al-Qaeda. You mean a group that you funded to perpetuate your Arab Spring, right? And you relied that people would blindly do so. Do you know what? Where is Mark Rowe? Uh, stall. Straw. S-T-R-O-H. You know, he's got a lot to say. Wonder where he's at. Great FSO, by the way. <laughs> but what does he have to say about this? Sometime after that, the next, next day, early the next morning after that, on the 12th or 13th, they retracted their claim of responsibility. And I think if, if you look at what all of us were trying to do, and we were in a position, Congressman, of trying to make sense of a lot of incoming information and Madam, watch the way the intelligence community tried to make sense of it. Madam Secretary, so all I there, can was say not is nobody there was not conflicting information the day of the attack because your press secretary said, if pressed, there's no connection between Cairo and Benghazi. It was clear. You're the ones who muddied it up, not the, not the information. Well, there's no connection. Here's what, here's what I think is going on. Here's what I think is going on. Let me show you one more slide. Again, this is from Victoria Nolan, your press person. She says to Jake Sullivan, Philippe Rhinus, subject line reads this, Romney's statement on Libya. Email says, this is what Ben was talking about. I assume Ben is the now somewhat famous Ben Rhodes author of the Talking Points memo. This email is at 1035, 27 minutes after your 1008 statement. 27 minutes after you've told everyone it's a video while americans are still fighting because the attack's still going on your top people are talking politics seems to me that night you had three options secretary you could tell the truth 
like you did with your family, like you did with the Libyan president, like you did with the Egyptian prime minister. Tell them it was a terrorist attack. You could say, you know what? We're not quite sure. Don't, don't really know for sure. I don't, I don't think the evidence is there. I think it's all in the person, but you could have done that. But you picked a third option. You picked the video narrative. You picked the one with no evidence. And you did it because Libya was supposed to be, as Mr. Roskin pointed out, this great success story for the Obama White House and the Clinton State Department. So coming from the person that actually booked the boats to take Stevens over there a year before he got promoted to ambassador, I can tell you uh, she's really angry right now because she's being called to the carpet. But unfortunately, Jim Jordan is working uh, with only a few weapons in his cache of information. And the truth will come out. The truth will come out. You're going to see this come full circle. Barack Hussein Obama funded. There is money trails to show who they were paying to pretend protest in order to cause that chaos. And that protest was supposed to be cover for the direct hit. The protest was supposed to be cover for that direct hit. You know what? How come they won't release the communications to the annex in Italy? Somebody answer that question. How is it that no one answers that question? And a key campaign theme that year was GM's alive, bin Laden's dead, Al-Qaeda's on the run. And now you have a terrorist attack. And it's a terrorist attack in Libya. And it's just 56 days before an election. You can live with a protest about a video. That won't hurt you. But a terrorist attack will. So you can't be square with the American people. You tell your family it's a terrorist attack, but not the American people. You can tell the president of Libya it's a terrorist attack, but not the American people. And you can tell the Egyptian prime minister it's a terrorist attack, but you can't tell your own people the truth. Madam Secretary, Americans can live with the fact that good people sometimes give their lives for this country. They don't like it. They mourn for those families. They pray for those families, but they can live with it. But what they can't take, what they can't live with is when their government's not square with them. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. <clears throat> Madam Secretary, you're welcome to answer the question if you would like to. Well, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book, Hard Choices. I'd be glad to send it to you, Congressman, because I think the insinuations uh, that you are she plugged her book are making do a grave disservice to the hard work that people in the State Department, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, the White House did during the course of some very confusing and difficult days. There is no doubt in my mind that we did the best we could with the information that we had at the time. And if you actually go back and read what I said that night, I, I, was very, I was very careful in saying that some have sought to justify. In fact, the man that has been arrested as one of the ringleaders of what happened in Benghazi, Ahmed Abu Qatala, is reported to have said it was the video that motivated him. None of us can speak to the individual motivations of those terrorists uh, who uh, overran our compound and who
Yeah, you can. You guys paid them. You guys orchestrated it. Who attacked our CIA annex. There were probably a number of different motivations. I think the intelligence community, which took the lead on trying to sort this out, as they should have, went through a series of interpretations and analysis. And we were all guided by that. We were not making up the intelligence. We were trying to get it, make sense of it, and then to share it. When I was speaking to the Egyptian prime minister or in the other two um, examples you showed, we had been told by Ansar al-Sharia that they took credit for it. It wasn't until about 24 or more hours later that they retracted taking credit for Secretary it. Clinton. We also knew, Congressman, because my responsibility was for what was happening throughout the region. I needed to be talking about the video because I needed to be putting other governments and other people on notice that we were not going to let them get away with attacking us as they did in Tunis, as they did in Khartoum. And in Tunis, there were thousands of demonstrators who were there only because of the video, breaching the walls of our embassy, burning down the American school. I was calling everybody in the Tunisian government I could get. And finally, President Marzouki sent his presidential guard to break it. You mean the Arab Spring? <laughs> Stop. Let me tell you. What if I told you that those men at the embassy died the way they did? because of a spat between Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton. What if I told you that Barack Hussein Obama let her die on that hill, even though they organized it together, because he knew that bitch was trying to take him out, and his backers didn't want that happening, because she thought she was better than the UN. What if? This is just um, a suggestion. What if, what if Barack Hussein Obama had that video ready, the propaganda, which no one would be able to refute, they can invent riots without burning anything down. It's called Hollywood, okay? They can invent it. So allegedly, or hypothetically speaking, or let's play devil's advocate, Barack Hussein Obama was really pissed because she was making connections where she shouldn't have. He made the mistake of making her secretary of state. And what if he used that to his advantage? Very smartly so. What if? Because that's the type of shit Brennan does. And remember, Brennan groomed him as senator. Can you guys hear the angry thunder? Dang. <laughs> he wanted to get rid of her and he told her that everything was done according to plan he let her hang on that hill but gave her enough cover so she's talking about tunisia and egypt when we're talking about a whole different country get up there were is example after example that's what i was trying to do during those very desperate and difficult uh, clinton, hours if i could mr chairman secretary clinton you said my insinuation. I'm not insinuating anything. I'm, I'm reading what you said. Plain language. We know the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. That's as plain as it can get. That's vastly different than vicious behavior justified by internet material. Why didn't you just speak plain to the American people? 
I did. If you look at my statement, as opposed to what I was saying to the Egyptian prime minister, I did state clearly, and I said it again in more detail the next morning, as did the president. I'm sorry that it doesn't fit your narrative, Congressman. I can only tell you what the facts were. And the facts, as the Democratic uh, members have pointed out in their most recent uh, collection of them, uh, support this process that was going on where the intelligence community was pulling together information. And it's very much harder to do it these days than it used to be because you have to monitor social media, for goodness sakes. That's where the Ansar al-Sharia claim was uh, placed. I think the intelligence community did the best job they could, and we all did our best job to try to figure out what was going on and then to convey uh, that to the American people. Hmm. Convey what? Which lie? Wait, you want to hear her lie some more? There's some really good stuff. And the people that actually tried to throw cover but failed, we need to see this because now you're going to start to understand how they've been covering things up and not telling you things when they're doing things here. Clinton, her final appearance before the Senate as Secretary of State comes today when she introduces the man named to replace her, Senator John Kerry. And that comes just a day after her passionate and combative testimony about the terrorist attack in Benghazi that killed the U.S. ambassador and three other Americans. ABC's chief global affairs correspondent, Martha Raddatz, was there for all the action in Washington. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, George. It was truly a riveting day on Capitol Hill. We don't say that very often with Secretary Clinton, as some have never seen her before. She was at times combative, charming, disarming, and clearly ready for a fight. It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again, Senator. But when Clinton spoke of her four fallen colleagues, the pain, the memories were still raw. I stood next to President Obama as the Marines carried those flag-draped caskets off the plane at Andrews. I put my arms around the mothers and fathers, the sisters and brothers, the sons and daughters. And Clinton did not hesitate to shoulder the blame. As I have said many times, I take responsibility. But that did little to quiet some Republicans who wanted to know how this could have happened. You let the consulate become a death trap. Had I been president at the time, I would have relieved you of your post. I think it's inexcusable. The secretary fought back, aggressively defending comments made by U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice five days after the attack. Very simple phone call to these individuals I think would have ascertained immediately that there was no protest. With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was it because of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? A strong defense that did not satisfy Senator John McCain. Why do we care? Because if the classified information had been included, it gives an entirely different version of events. Like McCain, there were some Republicans who Hillary Clinton did not convince, but this was certainly a memorable way to close out her tenure, George. And a memorable day today coming up, Martha, the ban on women in combat going to be formally lifted by Leon Panetta. It'll be a big part of his legacy, but it's also something that was being pushed hard by the military itself, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
True. It was actually the Joint Chiefs, the heads of the Army, Marine Corps and other services. But what this really reflects is the reality of the last decade of war. Well more than 100 women have died in Iraq and Afghanistan where the front line has blurred. But this does take it to a new level. They could be officially part of infantry units, perhaps special forces, if they meet the physical standards. Right. I mean, wait, next. Washington keeping them posted of what's happening in Tripoli and to, to the best of my knowledge, what I'm being told in Benghazi. I think at about 2 p.m., the secretary, 2 a.m., sorry, the secretary called, Secretary of State Clinton called me along, and along with her senior staff, we're all on the phone. And she asked me what was going on and I briefed her on the developments most of the conversation was about the search for Ambassador Stevens. It was also about what we were going to do with our personnel in Benghazi. And I told her that we would need to evacuate. And that was the right, she said that was the right thing to do. At about 3 a.m., I received a call from the Prime Minister of Libya. I think it's the saddest phone call I've ever had in my life. He told me that Ambassador Stevens had passed away. I immediately telephoned Washington that news afterwards. And began accelerating our effort to withdraw from the Billis compound and move to the... Damn. That was... Heartfelt, very heartfelt, extremely heartfelt. So let me introduce you to legislation that may have um, passed. Many people have passed, which is important, and we're going to deep dive into it tomorrow. But 50 USC 3363, War and National Defense terrorist identification systems. Then we have, wow, the thunder's really, really busy, isn't it? 50 U.S. Code 3369. Encouragement of cooperative actions to detect and counter foreign influence operations. Now, obviously, with the Russia, Russia. This piece of legislation is allowing for collaborative work with the Karens. It takes on that social media companies should cooperate among themselves and with independent organizations and researchers on a sustained and regular basis to share and analyze data and indicators relevant to foreign information warfare operations within and across the platforms in order to detect counter foreign information warfare operations that threaten the national security of the United States and its allies partners. So let me tell you what's going to come of this uh, lawsuit quickly. Cause this happened while you were sleeping that they made this law. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they're all independent private companies. They want to call themselves private companies. They're everything but that. Okay. Here's the justification they're going to say. 
We've used independent organizations. We're not the government. We were only going by what they were telling us, censoring these people just to abide by this law. Like, we're bound to it because Congress passed it. Like, we're supposed to be, like, looking after stuff, and they've bound us by law that social media companies should be countering any counterintelligence from other countries. You told us to use independent organizations. Uh, you see. You see. This is how they get away with shit. That law should have been like, shut the dissidents out. They need to obey. They need to shut up. And anything that they say is probably Russian, Chinese, or whatever enemy they want to pick on for the flavor of the month that day. It's already passed in law. And then the funny thing is what we're going to get while you say, whoa, that's a big shield. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But then when you find out that these independent organizations are funded by the very people that are sequestering and stripping you of your freedoms, well, then they're not so independent now, are they? See, that's where it's going to get fun. So we'll break this down mañana. Mañana, we will break that down. Completely. Now we're going to end this with, you can't cancel the truth. Uh, canceled. You know, I saw Tom McDonald's um, store where he sells stuff. And I'm going to tell you what. I really wish he had like a hat or a ski cap uh, with like um, canceled tape images on it. I would totally wear one and buy one. So on that note, guys, I want to wish you a fantastic evening. And stay true to yourself. Trust your gut. Don't let anybody tell you and influence you what you need, what you want, and what you need to hear, and what you need to follow. Remember, they're using somebody else's authority to instill theirs. That's all you need to know. If they can't stand on their own two feet, well, they really don't have any legs to carry what they have to say. I can't be canceled, there's no way that you can stop me I'm Fully independent, there's no label who can drop me Y'all been starting rumors, let me help you with some Yeah. He's a racist, he's a sexist, he's in love with Donald Trump Y'all can't cancel me, my life is scandal free There ain't no sponsors taking losses cause the brand is me My hands are clean, my family and my fans agree Y'all can't cancel me for facts because you're mad and weak Go ahead and tell the world I'm ugly and racist I braid my hair and I don't care about cultural appropriation I moved to the ghetto, lived in the ghetto, there's no Caucasians And still I loved every single one of my neighbors How's a man say I'm clickbait? If he gonna use this face to get clicks on his page Y'all hypocrites are made But I ain't tripping about these bullies, it ain't sixth grade Go ahead and diss me trying to sell a couple mixed